morning is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 6 and we'll be reading the whole chapter from verses 1 to 23. As we hear God's word and are enabled to understand it this morning, may the Lord fill us with much joy. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They sent the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrifice, the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his house, his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Good morning, church. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brenda, for, uh, for, for reading God's word to us. 
Uh, before we begin our time this morning, allow me to ask God's help. Bow with me as I pray. Lord, we want to thank you this morning for bringing us together as a family to worship and adore you together. Father, we commit our time together now as we submit ourselves to your word that, Lord, may open the ears of our hearts that we might hear you speak to us. May you calm the storms in our hearts so that your word may penetrate in our, the depth of our hearts and may empower us, Lord, to live according to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, it's lovely that I'm sharing God's word with you this morning. Um, and uh, I ask you to keep your Bibles open and Second Samuel chapter number 6. As we begin our time this morning, um, I want to begin our time this morning by the words of a man who preached 50 years ago by the name A.W. Tozer. And listen to what he said in his sermon. The purpose of God in sending his son to die and to rise and to live and to be at the right hand of God the Father was that he might restore us the missing jewel that is the jewel of worship. That we might come back and lean and learn to do again that what you were created to do in the first place. That is to worship God in the beauty of his holiness. And to spend our time in awesome wonder and adoration in God. Feeling it. Expressing it. And letting it out in our labors. And doing nothing except as an act of worship to Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, this morning I want to suggest that this message said 15, 50 years ago is the message that people need to hear again and again and again, even today. You see, in every generation, what people are looking for and what people are desiring is to understand what is the meaning of life. And I think that is true for us today as in any other time before. You see, with the pandemic in our midst, I think you agree with me, with the pandemic in our midst, the world seems to be getting intense every day. You see, as each day passes, there are a lot of different pressures that comes to our lives. And as those pressures come to our life, there is a temptation that what we do on a Sunday morning and what we do between Monday and Saturday is different. What you ascribe as worship is only what we do in the three hours of a Sunday morning. When we leave church and we go where we go, Monday to Saturday, what we do is different. We no longer have that jewel of worship. We no longer, we've lost that. I don't know about you, but for me it's true. You know, when I'm a GWC, what I do on Monday, you know, being a theological student, People think that you'll be reading your Bible, praying always, like from, from morning to evening. That's not the case. I read the Bible, but I'm not reading the Bible to worship God. I'm reading the Bible sometimes to write in the Bible. So, there is a distinction. There's a compartmentalization of our lives. Our worship is ascribed to, di- to different things. Our worship only becomes what we do on Sunday mornings. And I think you agree with me that we definitely need a reminder, especially in the day we are in, in, in our time that we're living. What is authentic worship? What does it mean to authentically worship God? And I think our passage this morning is just helping us to do that. So please, keep your Bibles open in Second Samuel 6 as we look at God's word together. And first to unpack what authentic worship is, we'll look at our passage under three headings. Number one, what is the source of authentic worship? And number two, we'll look at what is the substance of authentic worship? And number three, we'll look at what is the spot uh, this is a fancy word. I had to look for a third word so that it just all becomes within us. So, what is the spot? I know this is a new word uh, for most of you. It is new for me. What is the spot? By spot, what you're talking about is what is the overflow 
of authentic worship. What do we see? What, what is the evidence when we, of authentic worship when we worship God? So first, we will talk about what is the source of authentic worship. And let me put it at the beginning to say, the source of authentic worship is a passion, is a deep passion for the presence of God. It's a deep passion for the presence of God. So, in our chapter this morning, on 2 Samuel 6, the context that Saul is dead. Saul is dead. I, I, like when we did this last week, Sunday, Saul was still alive. But now, where we are, Saul is dead. <laughs> Saul is dead, and, but now, David is now the king. David has been established as the king of Israel. But one of the things that is running David's mind, David really understands how he has become king. He understands where his kingship has come. And I think you remember at the beginning of service that God was establishing a king, wanted a king after his own heart. And David understands that. So if you keep your finger in 2 Samuel chapter number 6 and just flip back in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter number 5 and verse number 12. We, so we, need to, we need to see this. David really knew why he was king now. What had happened for him to be king now. So it reads, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So, you see, God now has been faithful to his promises to David. And David knows that. So that's why in verse number 1 we realize, in verse 1 and 2, we realize that David's priority at this point is to bring back the ark of God to Jerusalem. And uh, if you look in the Bible, this is not just one of these processions that people were doing just so that on a Sunday morning, just like, hey, religiously do this, let's just go and bring the ark of the Lord, just those who are available, please come. No, no, it's not that. You see, David took 30,000 chosen men. Chosen men. These were special men. David paid 30,000 people to be part of the procession of bringing back the ark of God to the capital city of people, God's people in Israel. To bring back the ark in Jerusalem. And in no doubt, what, what David is showing us in the, is this. He's seeing his rule and the role of his praise, whatever is happening in the new kingdom that God has established, that this is not my doing, this is God's doing. So if, I, if this is God's doing, I need, to, I need God in our midst. God has to be present in our midst. But friends, we need to pause a minute. You see, I hope you realize as the text was read, that one thing was repeated over and over again. That is the ark of God. The ark of God is at the center, center stage of our passage this morning. It is mentioned 13 times directly. Directly, it is mentioned 13 times. And 6 times further indirectly. So, if we are going to understand what's really happening in this passage, we really need to understand what is the significance of the ark of God. Unfortunately for us, the passage doesn't leave us uh, to, to find that for ourselves. It, it makes it available and it makes it clear for us. Because you see, in five occasions, the passage tells us that what David was doing and what Israel was doing before the ark, they were doing it before the Lord. So, look at verse number five. It says, for example, David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their mighty before the Lord. That I'm sure, logically, you, you see, the, the, the Lord was not present in person. The, the Lord was not present in person. So, what simply means that they were celebrating before the ark? So, what we see here, the ark was signifying the presence of God. And it was doing so in three, in three ways, which I want to help us to understand this morning. Firstly, the ark signified the presence of God in three ways, in, the, in this way. 
it revealed it was a testimony of God's revelation. So, back in Exodus, when God instructed Moses, right, to make the ark, he told him to place the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments written on them, like, on, on, like the, the, the tablets that had the commandments written on them, inside the ark of the covenant. So, the ark was a reminder that God has spoken to Israel, and that he had made certain promises for Israel's future. And that he had told them how they should live as redeemed people of God. Right? No other people, not anyone else, no other nation had heard from God. No other nation had the word of God. So, here, the ark signified God's revelation and the stone tablets in the midst of the ark that were showing people that no other nation had received God's word. So, Israel is God's people. If they are going to live as God's people, as redeemed people of God, they had to pay particular attention to God's word. They had to treasure it. Secondly, the ark was a reminder of God's reconciliation. So I think, uh, I think the professor will agree with me on this one. Uh, one of the tensions of the Old Testament was this. How can the Holy God dwell among sinful people? Or, how can a sinful people dwell in the presence of the Holy God? That was the tension that was there. If you look in Exodus, most specifically in, in, in Leviticus. And Israel understood this from the early days of their life. They understood this problem. They knew that God was so holy and they could not just come to them because they themselves were sinful. But you see, God provided a solution for this. Because, you know, when fire, look, when you put fire and water together, one of, one of the two has to disappear. One of the two has to disappear. The fire consumes the water. That's what the holiness of God did. And the Israelites seem to understand that, which our generation has lost. You know, we take the holiness of God for granted. But Israel understood this. So the question is, so if, how is a man going to survive in the presence of God? What has to be done? How can actually a man have a, a relationship with the Holy God? And fortunately enough, God provided a solution for this. Because once a year, on the Day of Atonement, a high priest would take the blood of an acceptable sacrifice and would sprinkle it on the lid of the ark as a sin offering on behalf of the people. And so the presence of the ark amongst Israel reminded them this, that they had to be thankful for this system. They had to be thankful that the Lord had provided a way that for them to be reconciled back to Him so that they can be able to dwell in His presence. And thirdly, the ark represented the rule of God among His people. So, this meant, so if you look in our passage in verse number 2, it reads, And David and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from, the, uh, from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim of, uh, of, that are on the ark. So you see, verse number two shows us two things here. Number one, it shows us that Saul had left the ark somewhere in an obscure village called Bala. You see, before, like in some passage that probably we didn't look at, we'll look at together, we remind that Saul left the ark there for 20 years. He left it there for 20 years. He didn't care about it. He left it there. But again, a second thing that we see that basically is showing us that the ark represented the rule of God. So, the Lord was enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. And because, you see, Saul was unwilling to submit to God's rule, that's why he didn't even bother to bring the ark of the Lord in the midst of God's people. He didn't care about it. He was not submitting to the rule of God. So he left it in the middle of nowhere. He didn't care about that. So, if we were to summarize 
what the ark signified to the people of Israel would say this way. The ark signified the presence of a speaking, pardoning, and reigning God in the midst of his people. And I think this is why David made it as a priority when he became king. When he conquered all, when he conquered the Philistines and he established now as king, this is why David made it a priority to bring the ark of God because what he was doing is he was bringing the presence of God. The one who is a ruler, the one who is speaking, and the one who is reigning amongst his people. Because he knew that God was the ruler of his people. And he was just doing this on behalf of God. You see, probably you're saying, hey, what you're telling us probably is scholarly. Like, it's, it's far-fetched. We, we, we don't care about that. The ark. We don't, like, we don't even bring an ark like, in, in, in the church. Like, we, we, we don't. We don't even know what it looks like. That's, 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 that's you, LGWC people, who think about this. But friends, can I, submit to, can I submit to this? Because when we come to the New Testament, we find all these three functions of the ark they are fulfilled in Jesus. They are really fulfilled in Jesus. And that's why the ark is also significant. Think about the ark was this morning. Right. So, when we come to the New Testament, we see that Jesus is our prophet. Right. He is bringing the complete and perfect revelation of God to us. He is the living way. And we also know that Jesus... He is our high priest. I think if you, in the book of Hebrews, it brings us this. He is our high priest who offered not only an animal sacrifice, but he offered himself on our behalf. And this is once and for all, so that us, we would enjoy the presence of God. <laughs> and this is also important for us to think about this, that he is also the king. You know, when we become Christians, this is what we say. We have accepted Jesus as the Lord and King of our lives. So you see, the ark in the, the, the significance of the ark, all of it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. The one we are following this morning. And friends, I want to submit to us this morning that we need to learn from David what it means for us to authentically worship. God. So, if our prayers and if what we do are to go beyond the ceilings of this room and even of our workplaces, of even our houses, we need to understand that that can only happen when we have a passion for Jesus. We must not be like, like Saul, who kept Jesus away. So, kept, so, so kept the presence of God away from himself. So, if our worship is going to be authentic, we should have a passion for Jesus and not keep him away in a distance, which is convenient to us. Like, we only go there. You know, you know I, I, I think about Jillian. Uh, we were talking about this this, uh, this other day. She was saying, I'm putting away my, wee, my, my summer clothes in a box. She, she's not throwing them away. She's just putting them away in a convenient place so that when she needs them, she can quickly go and pick them again. That's not what we should do with Jesus. If our worship is going to be authentic, we should not have compartments where we say, I'm going to get a ladder and put my, my Jesus there. I only go and get him when I need him. No, friends, this is what we shouldn't do. Jesus shouldn't be the person we look for on a Sunday morning. Like, I don't know about you, some people dust their Bibles on Sunday morning and say, Hey, today is church service. So, our worship, because, I mean, it's understandable because it's, 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 it's so easy to fall in that train because Monday to Saturday, there's so much pressure that life is giving us. Life is not easy. But we have to be reminded that we need to have this passion for Jesus and pay attention to His Word every day of our lives, in everything that we do, whether we are parenting, whether we are working, whether we are eating, whether we are in a taxi, whether we are in Uber, that should be, we should be passionate about Jesus. That would de- that would define what it is for us to authentically worship God. 
The second thing we want to look at this morning is, so what is the substance, what is the content of an authentic worship? And I want to submit this to, uh, uh, to, to us this morning that the substance of authentic worship is a reverence of God's grace. It is a reverence of God's grace. You see, our person this morning presents us with one of the most uncomfortable things to think about when you think about God. You see, Uzzah's death in this person is one of the things that's so uncomfortable for us to think and in, in our modern world of thinking. You see, when we, when we look at Uzzah, I mean, this guy, did he do wrong? That's the question. What he only did, he only tried to make sure that the ark of God, the presence of God, does not fall apart. Did he do wrong? That's the question we ask. Like, what did this guy do? I mean, you think of yourself, we are carrying the presence of God. If it's about to fall, I'll, I'll do something to, so that I will, it doesn't fall. Like, I mean, I love God so much. You see? And that makes us feel like God is not fair. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but the first time you read that, you feel like God is not fair. He's not fair. How could he kill someone who is defending him? <laughs> what kind of a God is that? Because also in the Bible, in Exodus 34, if you read Exodus 34, I think verse 9 and 10, we see God saying this to Moses, that, you know what, from now, I'm the Lord who is going to be compassionate. We're so gracious. We're slow to anger, abounding in love and faithful. But the way he deals with Uzzah here, it does not seem to fit with what God says is going to be. And this has brought a lot of challenges. I mean, a lot of people, and I think pastor would agree with me, a lot of pastors have struggled with understanding what this passage is significant for. And people try to protect God because we, we have an image of this loving God who does not kill people. So when we come to passages like this, we try to find arguments or to say, to defend God in a way. Alright? But, you see, the Lord's wrath broke against Uzzah. The way God's wrath broke against his enemies. If in, in Second Samuel chapter number five, you see that exactly what God did to his enemies is exactly what's happening to Uzzah here. So David was thought that he was doing something to honor the Lord in front of the most important people. But in front of the whole Israel, and he's, he's, uh, uh, think about what was going on in David's mind. I'm showing the whole world that it is this God who has made me king. But then the same God you're showing people kills people, kills someone who's defending him. <laughs> and, and that's why you see in verse number nine, the part was over. When Uzzah died, the part was over. And David was angry. He was angry with his God. In verse number one, David seemed excited to say, Hey, the Lord has made me king over Israel. And he was happy. But now, he was angry. But you see, he was not only angry, but he was also afraid. Look in verse number nine together with me. It says, <laughs> David says, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? You see, he was angry, but he also he was afraid of the presence of God. So David was not willing anymore for the ark of the Lord to come to his city. Instead, he took it aside, he, he sent it to the house of Obed-Edom, who was a guitar. So, what can we make out of this? What can we make out of Uzzah's death and all these things? There are two observations that we will make out of this. 
Number one of it, which is very also very important for us, and which I want us to think deep about, is that it is about scripture. It shows us that scripture is very authentic. So, Dale Ralph Davis, who, who, who comments on this passage, he says, For me, these passages like this one are the evidence that of the supernatural origin and the trustworthiness of the Bible. He said, we would never have invented a God like this. Not if you want to win converts and influence people. This God is not very marketable. Anyone who says that God of the Bible is merely a projection of our wish for fulfillment has not read the Bible. Do, do you see that, friends? Do you see that, friends? We are not cre- this God of the Bible. We can't create Him. He's not marketable. Like if you tell your friends about Him, like this is someone they the God. If you read, uh, the, uh, most of you probably might have read this, the God Delusion by this uh, guy who Steve Hawkinson. Right? I think so. Richard, yes, Richard Dawkins. Yep. These are some of the passages he refers to. How can we, how can you Christian ask us to follow the model of a God who kills people like this? But you see, for us Christians, we see, this is exactly why the God, the Bible, why scripture is authentic to us. Because it does not hide who God is. But again, the second observation is that the Lord has not acted on a whim. So you see, verse 7 is very explicit. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. So the background of this is that we find it in Exodus 25 and Numbers 4. So in Exodus 25 and Numbers 4, God gives explicit instructions for how to transport the ark of God. So in summary, the rules were no look no touch, no cut. Instead, the, uh, the ark was to be covered in an animal skin and was to be carried by the priest and they had to carry it on the pole. And the purpose of doing that was so that the people would not die. So, the point is this. These instructions were God's grace to protect the people from His holiness. God was trying to save their lives only if they listened to the instructions of him. And this is exactly what David understood in the verses that come. So, I want, I want us to keep our, our fingers in 2 Samuel uh, chapter number 6 and, but flip over to First Chronicles chapter number 15 and look at verse number 12 to 15. First Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 12 to 15. And this is a parallel account of the same event. And it's just, now it's telling us more details of when David was making the second attempt to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. Still hear some pages flipping. So verse 12 says, so David now is speaking to the priests and he says, You are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourself and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So, the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord and the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of God. So, what this is telling us is that Uzzah died of complacency concerning the holiness of God. Was Uzzah to blame himself? You see, for 20 years, the ark of God had stayed in Uzzah's father's house. He must have known about the Lord's gracious life saving instructions for keeping the ark. 
But perhaps over the years, we had gotten used to having this strange box, this strange box in the family home. And so gradually, as the years passed by, the, the, the idea of the holiness of God started to demean in him. It was no longer a reality in him. You know, God had wonderfully been domesticated in a neat little box somewhere else stored in the display. So, we, like the, we do not really know if this is the case, but I'm just trying to prop, prompt our imagination here. But what you can say from, this, from the Chronicles passage is that David and the priest did realize that it, has been, it was because of the, their complacency that the Lord's anger was brought to them. They had forgotten about the Lord's holiness and saw the grace of God did not mean anything to them, was no longer important. They thought they did not need it at all. And, as, and I'm saying this, I hope you're starting to put your picture in yourself in the picture here. You see, many times, let me speak from my experience and not and, and, and not force you into the experience, but I think you see yourself that you're like me. So, many times I feel like I've not met God, like I've not encountered God, like even in church, in, in my quiet time. But you see, 99% of those times is that because I've lost sight of God's holiness. And so, His grace does not make any sense to me anymore. It means nothing to me. So, when we lose sense of God's holiness, His grace does not mean anything to us. So, friends, Uzzah stands here, is warning us against that. You see, the God of the Bible is an awesome God. And this awesome, let me, let me pause there. This awesomeness of God is not that awesome, like, ooh, that's awesome. Like, that's the way, the, the way they keep turning way of saying awesome now. You know, awesome in Cape Town is like something that's so nice. That's so beautiful. Something that's so lovely. You know? That, 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 that's not the original way of understanding awesomeness of God here. But awesomeness of God is that thing that causes us to revere Him. To honor Him. To respect Him. So now, the, the, this passage is showing us the awesomeness of God in His holiness. And that shows that our offer, our, our worship to God is only acceptable through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And that should command our reverence and awe for you. Our third and last point, the spot of authentic worship. Uh, I say the spot, like this is a S-P-U-R-T. Uh, this is a fancy way to say the overflow. How do you see an overflow of authentic worship. And I want to suggest this morning that the spot of an authentic worship is seen in a heart overflowing with joy. A heart that is overflowing with joy. You see, one of the old features here, uh, so I'm, 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 the professor is here, the professor is teaching this subject, so um, and uh, I, we have a, full, a few of his students in this class uh, uh, who are here. So, I, I hope you realize that one of the odd features of this passage is that the writer or the narrator of Second Samuel 6 puts the fear of David and the joy of David side by side. So you see, in verse 9, David is afraid and calls off the public holiday celebration. Right? We see in verse 1, David calls like, hey, let's celebrate the bringing of the ark. In verse 9, he says, cut off. Like, imagine the president of South Africa saying, tomorrow is a public holiday. But then at 12 o'clock, he says, we've cancelled the public holiday. Go back to work. That's exactly what's happening. In verse 9, he's cancelling that. He cancelled that. The mood was dark. 
and, and we understand him. We understand why he's cancelling this. How could a holy God, a beautiful God, an awesome God, how could he kill someone who's trying to protect him? So we understand why David calls this off. But in verse 12, look with me in verse 12. In verse 12, I think you remember what uh, in the beginning of the sermon series when the pastor reminded us that in the Old Testament narratives, in the Hebrew narratives, usually the main point is found on the middle of the passage. And verse 12 is just about in the middle of our passage. So verse 12 is one of the, like it's our main point, like if you see of the passage. So verse 12 says, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. And because of that, everything suddenly changes, the mood suddenly changes. The king probably was sleeping somewhere and was crying, I don't know for how long, I think for three months, he was crying and saying, God, why did you do this? And then someone says, King, you know what? The ark of God has brought blessings to Obed-Edom. The way. So you have abandoned the ark of the Lord you know, Obed, to Obed-Edom, but you know what? Obed-Edom has been blessed. I'm imagining the king was in the blankets, angry, tired and crying. His mood changed immediately. Immediately David went and brought back the ark of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom. And he was doing this with rejoicing. So, in verse 14, we find David is dancing with Almighty before the Lord. The angry and fearful David on the first basis is now dancing with Almighty before the Lord in verse 14. You see, this side of the passage that gets us our attention. You see, the problem is how can we get, when we think about, how can we bring the two opposites together? How can we have the fearfulness of God, the, the fearfulness of David, and the joy that is expressed in verse 14 together? Right? It forces us to think, what's happening there? And I think uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Davis says something that's important for us to understand this morning. He says, A fearful sense of God's presence does not stifle joy. It stimulates it. In other words, David's joy, when he hears about the blessing that the Lord brought Obed-Edom, would not have been so great if he had not experienced God's holiness in the first place. Friends, I think this is teaching us that Christian joy is not just a mindful, mindless cheerfulness. You see, it comes from an appreciation of the holiness of God. The seriousness of, the seriousness of sin and the genuine thankfulness of Christ who died in our place. You see, that should motivate our worship. That should motivate our worship. But this is not the end of the story. Because you see, the story ends in another tragedy. You know, David's wife, Michal, is in verse 16. All these things, he's seeing, she's seeing them differently. Very differently. So verse 16 reads, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, Watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him. him. She despised him in her heart. You see, she's not coming. So the, the, the writer of the story is presenting to us Mika not coming out in a good way at all. My question is like, in the first place, the whole of Israel is celebrating the ark coming to Jerusalem with the king. Why was she not in Israel? Why was she not part of the procession? It's easy for us to ask those questions, right? It's easy for us to ask those questions. And for men, you see, like this is a men conversation. You see, you see that's why women are a problem. <laughs> they are always a problem. <laughs> but you see, you see, 
I want, us, I want us to think about this. I want us to think about this more. I want you to think about this. If King David was going to walk on that door today, from knowing King David walks through that door, St. Barnabas, with overflowing joy, he's dancing with Almighty before the Lord. Would we even make him feel welcome? Or would we despise him? I mean, I'm happy with what's happening in St. Barnabas. I don't know about you. Well, at least we're starting to move. We're slowly starting to move. So maybe we would accommodate him slightly. So at least maybe we would accommodate him slightly. So you see, friends, we are meant to notice three in, like, we are meant to notice that on three occasions, Michael, that Mika is mentioned in this passage. She's not even referred as to as David's wife. She's referred to as Saul's daughter. And if you look in verse 12, if you, verse 20, her comment is very revealing. It says, When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel dis- 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 distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellowhood. You see, like a father, Mika is much more concerned about external appearances than the heart that is right before God. She's worried about the, what it looks like outside. She's not concerned about how the heart looks before God. In her eyes, David's joy is beneath the dignity of a king. How can a king do that? How can you worship? How can you dance like that on a Sunday morning? How can you celebrate like that? You're a king! You see, Mikau is not complacent here in the presence of God. She is simply cold-hearted. You know, we spoke about who's being complacent. But that's not the case with Mikau. She's cold-hearted. The presence of God leaves her unmoved. She's not moved by the presence of God. And you see, the outcome of verse 23 is so pathetic. It's like so painful. She died without any children. Friends, this morning, you see, probably, our problem is not complacence at all. Probably. Probably our problem is not complacence of all, at all. Because we've understood something about the holiness of God. And we know and understand the grace of God. Which came through the gospel. We have it clear in our minds. Right? But what about our hearts? Does the gospel move us? Are we moved when we hear God's word? Are we moved by that? Or we are moved by everything else when we see what's happening on social media, when we see the COVID statistics, when we see all these things, probably we are moved by that. But does the gospel move us? You know, last week I was, uh, when we were going back to college, I was trying, when Pastor was, 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 was driving us, we were listening to Tim Keller and we were speaking of two levels of knowing. That every Christian knows by the man, like they can know the gospel. But the question is, do they know it in their heart? Do they know it in our heart? Do you know the gospel in our heart? Are we moved by the gospel in our hearts? So our response when we are at work, when we leave from Monday to Saturday, out of this place, what we do, how we respond to situations, is it because the gospel is moving us to respond in that way, or we are not, we just have the head knowledge of the gospel, but our hearts are not moved by the gospel at all. We need to ask ourselves this. As we as we think of retaining this jewel of worship in our lives from Monday to Saturday, we need to think about this. Are we moved by the gospel? 
Or are we, are, are, are we too used to the gospel? That it just flies. When you hear that Jesus Christ died for you, that you might be restored back to God, does that change you? Does that change your affections to other people? Does that change the way you see other people? Does that change the way you live your life? Does that change the way you even do your work, your assignments, and whatever responsibility that you have? Does that change that? You see, we're living in a world that the temptation is like when you see something on social media, you take that to be the prescriptive and the normative of your life. And forget about God's word. Why? Because we're used to it. We feel like the social media or whatever we meet and encounter in our lives is revealing to us new wisdom and new things. But we're so used to the gospel. Let me close our time this morning with a quote from a, a man called William Dalton. So, writing on Michael's attitude here, he says, There are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic. But can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world. I'll repeat again. There are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic. But can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? Let's pray. Thank you, God, this morning for speaking to our hearts and to our minds. Thank you for refreshing us and reminding us of your goodness, of your word. Father, we pray that the words that you've spoken to us may come with an empowerment to leave them, to transform us and to change us. Help us to retain and redeem that jewel of worship that we have lost in our lives. And in our times of pandemic and times of troubles and difficulties, that we give our enthusiasm to Christ who has died for us to have a relationship with Him and to give meaning to our lives. Revive the passion in us of Your presence. Give us the reverence of You. And may our hearts outflow with joy in your presence. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, thank you very much for making that passage come alive with freshness and vitality to